0: TheOAMNetwork.com.
1: Power to the podcast. Welcome to a special MLK 50 edition of The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, executive director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee, The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. For the past 13 years, Charles McKinney has been an associate professor of history at Rhodes College here in Memphis. He's also the director of Africana Studies there. Professor McKinney has been a leading voice in the Memphis community on issues of racial and economic inequality. His primary research and writing interests is the civil rights movement, but he's outspoken and thoughtful about a variety of topics. He's a Morehouse grad and holds a Ph.D. from Duke University. He was kind enough to sit down with us in advance of the MLK 50 commemoration here in Memphis and talk about some of the issues that he's been studying for so long. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Professor McKinney, for making that long trip down uh, North Parkway (laughs) to the uh, Permanent Record Studios here at Crosstown Concourse. Um, We appreciate you joining us. Very happy to be here. And you are a professor at Rhodes College for uh, quite a few years now. Yes, 13 years. Time flies. And, um, I don't know, just to jump
0: right in, what, what classes are you teaching this semester? This semester, uh, two courses, um, Martin Luther King in historical context. Rumor has it there's some stuff about King going on in town. I don't know <laughs> if, if you've heard about that. Um, yeah, I have yeah, a few things. Yeah, I've rumor, seen some buses. Yes, lots of rumors. Um, and then uh, the Civil Rights Movement in Memphis. Oh, wow. Um, so to. Um, one one really sort of Memphis specific course, and another course where we're trying to peel away um, the uh, the sugary, um, non-confrontational action figure veneer of Martin King to um, reveal the actual the actual Martin King, the one who actually lived and did work, right, um, right. as opposed to the you know as opposed to the Barney the purple dinosaur version <laughs> of King we have yeah. now. Let's talk about that
1: then. Uh, One of the reasons we wanted to have you on was because of this conversation that 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 Memphis is trying to lead uh, around uh, the commemoration of his assassination and this MLK 50. I mean, what are we'll talk maybe more about King himself and this caricature that you mentioned uh, in a minute. But what what about what is important for a city like Memphis in 2018 uh, to to discuss and to talk about uh, when when commemorating something like this?
0: That's a good question. Um, I I think that. you know the city's got a couple of choices to make and and i think frankly they've made some some bad ones right in terms of how you uh how you talk about um how you talk about where we are right how you talk about um the current context the current reality and again i think you know part of the part of the problem part of the stumbling block right is is when we think of and when we memorialize king as again, this sort of non-confrontational action figure. When we think about King solely as somebody who's running around telling people to love other people, right? Um, When we decouple um, the reality of King, King is thinking about, you know, King's thinking broadly defined. He's thinking about three things, right? He's thinking about love, the relationship between love, power, and justice. Love, power, and justice. We have stripped away King and power, we've stripped away King and justice, right? So now we're like, oh, Martin Luther King wanted everybody to love everybody, yay. And so what that means then is that the celebrations are reduced to um, celebrations of of love, celebrations right. of, related to dignity and other sort of really vague adjectives, right? So then what that means then is that the city loses the opportunity to talk about this fuller relationship yeah. between love, power, and justice.
1: Put a little context around um, the the power and justice part of King from you know, pre-1968. When, when he arrived in Memphis, he was not a popular man.
0: No, he wasn't popular at all because he was talking about love, power, and justice, right? right? He was talking about, look, you know, if, we have, if we have a moral code and if we have a legal code and those things don't conform, if those things aren't winding up um, um, enabling people to live decent lives, right, then we're doing something wrong. So we've got a moral obligation, we've got a political obligation to fix the ills that are ailing American society. So we've got an obligation to fix poverty, we've got an obligation to fix uh, racism, um, to end segregation, right? We've got got an obligation to bring African Americans and other marginalized populations further into the mainstream of American life. And if we're not doing that, then we're not living up to our, we're not living up to our creed. And how much more difficult is that when you don't talk about power and justice? Well, it's impossible, right? right? You know, um, you know and, and you see this, and this is, I think, reflected in, you know, some of the city's efforts to talk about this moment, right? You know, I am Memphis. Well, what does that mean? Who is, who is, who is I am Memphis, right? You know, um, you, you can't have it both ways, where you, you know, on the one hand, you marginalize, explicitly marginalize populations of Memphis, and then want to turn around and say, I, I am Memphis, right? Um, half of the black children in this city are living in poverty, right? Um, we're the poorest major city in the country. So you know, so to have so to have conversations that don't reflect those realities, right? To to create a commemorative context that don't reflect the realities of the fact that there are some things that are in in, there's some circumstances in Memphis now where if King were alive, he would completely recognize them because they're the same. Right. Right? So if we don't have so if we don't have the if we don't have the, the bravery or the wherewithal to grapple with that as we try to figure out how to move forward, then what are we
1: doing? I live in a bit of a, of a bubble, <laughs> and so I hear a lot of that. I have a lot of these conversations on a daily basis because of the work I do and the, and the company I keep, I guess. Uh, and, and what you're describing is something that I do hear being talked about, but I, but I, tell me if, if I'm right. When I uh, look at kind of the schedule of what's to come or you know, for MLK 50 and the ways that we're going to commemorate, I do see a veneer. Uh, that doesn't go much beyond um, that love is, is that right are these conversations or folks I mean I, I follow you on Twitter I, I, you know, I follow others that I hear talking about this and I've been to panels in the past you know month um, are, are we doing some of that
0: uh, yeah we're doing some of that I mean there's you know the n- next week is going to be ridiculous <laughs> right <laughs> I mean you know there's going to be so much so much stuff going on you know right so and, and a lot of this is good work right I mean I, you know I don't want to I don't want to throw all of this all of this, you know, up, upcoming week I don't want to throw it all in the trash can, right? Um, um you know, there are gonna be some I think some substantive conversations that we're gonna have about about King, about poverty, about Memphis, about race, about class. Um so I think a lot of that stuff's gonna happen, right? You know, and so the object of the game for many of us is to figure out um, you know, where those conversations are are are, are happening and and how we can be a part of them, right? One of the things that I know a number of my friends who are engaged in this in this work of social change? A number of my my activist colleagues, right, are very concerned about this just being a series of conversations. Um, you know, the the sort of the feel good, um, the sort of the feel good stuff that we do around these commemorations, where we get together, sing some Negro spirituals, you know, watch some clips of I Have a Dream, um, and then go back and not actually confront any of the realities that make people poor in in Memphis, yeah. right? So that's so that's the so that's the concern, and so you know there's an opportunity now for a number of voices to um, to to you know to 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 enter into this enter into these conversations and dialogues about what needs to happen about um, you know figuring out how to answer King's question, where do we go from here? chaos or community
1: yeah let's so what are one or two uh, on the on the list of of solutions of of actions that a community that Memphis should be taking uh you know on on these issues instead of the conversations, whether we're having them in the right way or not, what should we be doing?
0: You know, um, I'll give a shout out to um, Shelby County schools and superintendent Dorsey Hobson for announcing recently that, you know, they're going to pay a living wage to, um, you know, to some workers um, who work for Shelby County schools who aren't making a living wage. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You know, so that's, that's what you do, right, is is you say, okay, I mean, you know, Memphis can't have it both ways, right? We can't say, how do we fix poverty? Oh, excuse me, while we continue to pay you slave wages, right? right? You know, we can't simultaneously say, we want to fix poverty, let's come together and figure this out, and have the Chamber of Commerce, you know, saying, hey, come and build, uh, you know, come and build your, you know, build your corporations, build your hotels, build your things here, because you get to pay slave wages here in Memphis, right? You can't have it both ways. And then, and then be surprised when people don't actually believe you when you say you want to fix poverty, right? Because what you're actually saying is, look, I want to address poverty, but I don't want to address one of the primary ways uh, we keep people poor in the city and in the county. I want to continue to pay slave wages, right? I want to continue to pay wages that keep you mired in poverty, but man, how do we fix this whole poverty thing? I am so confused. Right. It's it's strange that we often fail to talk
1: about the one thing that that really does help bring people out of poverty, and that's money. That's money, right? You know, so
0: <laughs> the thing, right. The thing that makes you yeah. not poor. Right, you know, is, is money. Martin King did not come, I tell my students all the time, Martin King did not come here to march on the United Way. <laughs> he didn't come here to march on churches. He didn't come here to march on social services to say that they need to expand their, you know, they need to expand their their reach within working-class communities. He came here to get people more money in their pockets because that's what gets people out of poverty. So again, um, you know, we we can't have it both ways because part of the problem and part of the challenge here in Memphis, right, is that so much of our, you know, so much of these dialogues are driven um, by you know by corporate interests, right, and by and by by city and by the city, right, and so you know um, it's hard to stand up and say, hey, you know what, um, you know, and Wendy Thomas is showing us this, right, in, in her MLK Fifty Justice Through Journalism blog, she's like, hey, okay, all the folks who are running around talking about you know King's dream and um, you know, and, and how do we end poverty? Are you paying your employees a living wage? And you know, so she sent out, you know, she sent out materials to all of the, you know, local local org- you know local companies and organizations. And let's just say she has not gotten a one hundred percent return on on the forms, right? Yeah. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, in this this very sort of elemental, you know, th- this is really simple right you know if the house is on fire you're like how do we put the fire out we well, put water, water on it right, of course. <laughs> right? It you is. don't you don't have you know we don't have to have a dinner to figure out how to put a fire out right we know we, we know what needs to happen to put a fire out we know what needs to happen to fix poverty the question is whether or not we want to do that or if we're going to continue to engage in what i like to call this sort of poverty dance yeah
1: yeah very well said well i want to hear your thoughts too on on the uh, you, you know you you study and. In, in uh Teach a lot about local movements and the movement recently to bring down these Confederate statute statues and monuments in Memphis uh, that was ultimately um, successful. Uh, talk about the, the interplay between activists and the community voices, and then the decisions and actions by by city government in particular. All right, great question.
0: Um, first off, shout out to um, took them down nine hundred one. Of course, Woo-hoo! of course, yeah. they're gone. Love that. <laughs> uh, my boys, my children no longer have to live in a city where we have to drive by a statue of a slave-trading racial terrorist. How old are you kids? Um, my oldest daughter is 27, getting ready to be 28. Hey, Vanessa. And then my boys, our boys are um, 17 and 13, and they both need to get jobs. Um, <laughs> they eat like grown men. So um, at any rate, back to the question. <laughs> but you digress. Um, yeah, but I digress. Um, <laughs> So I think the word that's really crucial there that you used in, the, in that question is the interplay, right? Because that's exactly what it is. Um, it's a dynamic interplay between activists, between politicians, between the media um, that give rise to a context in which um, things that were previously impossible are now possible, right? So for instance... Um, You know, I'm the history professor to give you an historical example, right? Um, We we know that February 1st, 1960 is the day the sit-ins jump off in in Greensboro, North Carolina, four freshmen, North Carolina A&T University, go Aggies. Um, You know, these four gentlemen sit in at Woolworths and the movement spreads like wildfire, right? Now, there had been a number of instances where people had sat in before, right? The one before this is in Durham, North Carolina, um, a, small, a small group of students at North Carolina College for Negroes, now North Carolina Central University, they do basically the exact same thing. Nothing happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's instances before that where people go in and basically nothing happens. But in February 1st, 1960, this jumps off and, it, and, it, and it's, like a, it's like a bomb goes off, right? So by the end of the month, you've got sit-ins taking place all across the southeastern United States, right? Um, and so that's about context, right? Um, and so thinking about the statues – it's context, right? So you know, so this has been a long-standing concern of a number of people, but we did not, we weren't in a context in which, um, you know, in which this was this was going to be politically possible, right? The context changes um, with the election of Donald Trump. The context changes in the wake of Charlottesville. The context changes because you've got a, a coterie of activists who are putting constant pressure on um on the polit- on, on the politicians in town to do the thing that is now way infinitely more possible than it was in a, in a previous in a, in a previous moment right so um, so yeah so it 's a dynamic interplay of all of these things right and so um and, I, and from my perspective, I think it's always really important for us to give a shout out to the activists. Right. Because when we write history, when we think about these moments, our default mode is to ask, what did the politicians do? Our default mode is to, is to say, okay, who signed what pieces of paper to enact certain sorts of things? And that work is important, right? But we can't reduce – you know. but it's really important for us not to reduce these types of moments down to, okay, what did the mayor do? right? right? Because if we do that – you go back to 1968, right? The mayor signs an agreement. So then, you know, so is Henry Loeb the star yeah. of that particular show? Of course, of course not, right? right? Well, maybe not, right? So, again, that's why it's important, I think, to, to lift up and to understand that dynamic interplay, but also to understand the ways in which activists um, – Help to facilitate these. Help to facilitate. Help to move us from the impossible to the possible. Shout out to Take Them Down Nine Hundred One sure, again sure. and Tammy Sawyer. and
1: in And the and the institutional actors in this case, the mayor, city council, they're not going to acknowledge that cover that they were provided in that uh, that uh, context right, that right. these activists gave. Yeah. Right. And, then, and then it's natural.
0: Um. Yeah. Right. They're not gonna. But, you know. They're not going rec- You know. They're not gonna talk about. You know. You know they're not going to talk about that. Many of them are not going to talk about that pressure publicly, but they understand that pressure and they appreciate that pressure because, again, that's how politicians move. That's how politicians work. They don't get up and say, "Oh my goodness, I need to do I need to do something good today," right? You know, they're going to do something good because they've been pushed to do so, right? And that's again what what activists and the, and, and the media, when it's acting right, um, you know, uh, you know uh, that's that's what they can help um, help to do is 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 to center and help uh, politicians and elected officials understand that they're in a moment, right? In this moment, now is the moment to move, right? And again, it's really important to, underst- to, you know, think about this in terms of, you know, 10 years ago, this was, you know, the statues were up, um, you know, and the, the, you know, this, is, the, this issue had, had erupted a couple of times yeah. before this finally happened, right? right? So, yeah. you know, um, Willie Harrington wasn't touching this with a 10-foot pole, Right. The first um,
1: black mayor. Yeah. Right. 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 Memphis, I mean, you know, yeah. so, you know,
0: black mayor, uh, you know, a majority black city council, a majority black county commission. And they were like, oh, no, we're not touching that issue. Right. Because, again, that's politically fraught. That's like the third rail of Memphis politics. Right. Is to mess with these statues of our sacred slave trading racial terrorists. Right. You know, because we love our slave trading racial terrorists in, in, in Tennessee. God bless our slave trading racial terrorists. Right. <laughs> so. Um, and we're not going to touch them because then we're bumping up against white power. Right. Then we're bumping up against you know um, conservative, um, racial racial conservatives and other folks who you know are like, look, you guys can do whatever you want to do, but don't touch our yeah. don't touch our statues of our slave trading racial terrorists Wait. because we love them. Well, now
1: that we have, I mean, you you, you started out this this comment uh, by talking about things that were previously impossible being possible, and I think that's that's true now that these statues are gone and the way that they were taken down makes other things possible. What are what are some of those things? That that we should be looking at next. I think that you know.
0: I I I think it's also. I think another thing that we can point up here, right, is is the way in which um, we create this this space of possibility, so that um, so that one of the you know, so that the ultimate solution to the statue thing, right, is to have this private entity, right, Memphis Green Space, come in and you know and buy this, you know here, here, sell, you know, here, we'll buy these. Now we can get the statues done, right? So, again, that's, an, that, that's another, you know, and, and shout out to the folks in Memphis Green Space, um, uh, Luther, and, Luther Mercer, Van Turner, and, 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 and that crew. Um, you know, so, again, that's another example of, of, of that dynamic interplay, right? And so one of the questions that we can ask is, what does it look like when we apply this dynamic interplay to other issues? Right. The other thing that we can ask, right, is... Um, you know what other kinds of conversations and dialogues have been happening in these moments. This is one of the things that I think is really important when it comes to movement work, right? Is that invisible that invisible labor, the conversations after the marches are over, right? The the the, the arguments. The, um, you know, the, the, the vision boards figuring out what else is possible in this moment, right? That's another really crucial part of the work. It's ugly. It's dirty. It's not sexy. That's not the stuff that's going to, you know, no one's going to make a reality show right. of or, activists getting or together. Right, or a documentary, <laughs> right, of activists getting together. You so know. what are
1: those things? What are, what, are, what are on those whiteboards?
0: Well, so, um, you know, when you listen to the people who are engaged in, you know, in the statue removal, right? that was an an amalgamation of a number of other organizations, right? So Fight for 15 folk are out there, right? You know, folks who are concerned about a host of issues, folks who are concerned about, um, you know, immigrant rights, folks who are concerned about DACA kids, folks who are concerned about LGBTQIA um, issues, right? All of those folks made up this consortium. So again, you know, this is a moment for all of those organizations to say, okay, you know what, we can mobilize around issues of, uh, you know, around issues of interest, so what does that look like to continue to try to mobilize? What is that next issue of interest that we can that we can access, right? And so that's why I think you also see, you know, an increased number, an increased awareness and an increased levels of energy related to the fight for fifteen. Right? Um you know, and so that's I, I think that's probably one of the areas where um, you know, if I was a betting man, I would say that's that might be one of the areas where we can really start to hunker down and see some and see some movement in terms of movement growth, right? In terms of people saying, "Hey, uh, yeah, why aren't we paying our why aren't we paying our why aren't we paying a living wage?" Right? We understand what it needs. We understand you need fifteen dollars an hour to live here in Memphis, right? We get that. Well, why aren't we paying people fifteen dollars an hour? Again, it gets back to that yeah. central reality that you know that's like tentacles, right? You know, poverty is so. Right. You know, it's so pervasive in terms of what what other other areas of your life, your existence are impacted by that. If you're poor, you probably don't. You, know, you might not have a car. If you don't have a car, then you're relying on public transportation in Memphis. And we know what that means. Yeah. Right. You know, so so there's just so many right. so many things that well, we can be doing. Let's talk about my
1: favorite criminal justice. Uh, you uh, you describe the classes you teach as those that focus on the African-American experience uh, in America. And for the last 40 years, at least, that experience for black men in particular, uh, has included more and more and more contact with the criminal justice system um i you know and there are all sorts of you know scholarly books and articles and opinions on on why that has happened and I can go for days on the statistics and my opinions on how we police and where we police and what we do with drugs and what we but uh ultimately this institution uh looks much like institutions in in our country's history. And I want to know how you talk about that in your classes, how you teach kids uh, coming up about the, the the impact of the criminal justice system on the African-American experience.
0: I mean, one of the things I think it's important for us to, to realize now we've got a a lot of new scholarship and literature on this, right. Is that we tend to, we tend to focus on, on black men, but we also, we've got to expand, we've got to expand that frame to include black women as well. Right. You know, um, uh, the incarceration of black women, um, in the early 20th century is also a crucial, you know, is also a crucial part of this, of this conversation and IE, um, you know, um, moving us towards mass and mass incarceration and things of that nature. So, um, you know, there's, it's just, it's like, how do you talk about the sky? Right. I mean, it's, it's, um, containment and confinement has always been, um, sort of a core tenant of this nation's relationship to black people, right? Slavery, um, is about containment and confinement, it is about incarceration. It is about um, being always, always being aware of where the people you own are located, right? Where they are housed, when they are fed, um, what they are fed, what they are doing, right? So, um, so when we think of slavery as, as a form of incarceration, um, then I think it opens up a space for us to, to understand and realize the ways in which um, our, our, our thinking about incarceration has changed and has not changed, right? Because slavery as incarceration, um, you know, there's an intimate relationship there between, um, you know, control and labor, right? You know, we, we need these people to do these things, right? So that we can make this money. So when we think about, when we think about slavery as incarceration, then we can think about, um, we, we then have to start thinking about black folks' relationship to the state, right? Black folks' relationship to the federal government. And that opens up a space, um, or at least I try, I hope it opens up a space for us to talk about, right, the expansion of, you know, the carceral state, um, but also talk about the ways in which um, for for this country, right, incarceration, the confinement, the containment of black people is is our default mode, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I, so I want to try to, I, I, so in, in my classes, I want to try to trouble this um, this notion that um, you know everything was just fine, and then at some point in you know, and at some point in the you know early twentieth century, we had we we started we began to develop an incarceration problem. Right now, did, do we see incarceration rates rise dramatically? Yes, we do. Right, so we can chart that. We can we can graph that. Um, but when we think about but when we think about segregation, but when we think about convict leasing, when we think about these things that Michelle Alexander and others have, um, 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 have started to write about, right, then we can start to see a longer narrative. And that longer narrative, says the historian, right, can really help us to focus um, and, and be a little more clear-eyed about, um, about where we are now. I hope, that, I hope that makes some sense. It does. It does. It makes a lot of sense. And I think um,
1: it, it kind of – I, I want to revisit it. No, I want to talk about it right now <laughs> on the fly. On the fly. So um, you, you, I was browsing through your CV in preparation here, and you, you gave a talk in North Carolina a few years ago, and the, and the conference or the symposium was called The Crawl of an Arthritic Turtle, Race, Progress, and Freedom in North Carolina. Um, and so what's painfully vivid about that description is the, the pace of change and the pace of our country's uh, re- reconciliation or, or recognition of this thing you just described, this, mm-hmm. this containment and, and control. And, um, what, what shakes that loose? What's the one thing that, that needs to happen, um, to, to really move? Because what you just described is, is no different. I mean, you, you punched holes in my idea that this has, has sprung up in the last 40 years. It hasn't, you know, black people were brought here <laughs> in chains right. and we continued to chain and enslave them. Right. Um, what has to, what are we, what are we missing? Why, why can't we get past this? Why is it an arthritic turtle and not, you know, a, and I not a hair? I don't think
0: we're, I don't think we're missing anything, right? I think this is one of the great myths of, of, uh, of our time, right? Is that people don't have enough information, right? And Wendy Thomas is really good at talking about this, right? In this moment, um, when we're talking about, you know, all of the things that ail us and people are like, well, you know, people need to know. And she's like, well, what don't they know? Right. You know, and so, Um, you know, uh, so we see these dramatic rates of, you know, incarceration because of, you know, all of these heinous laws that are passed by people on both sides of the political spectrum, right? You know, um, I like to remind my students all the time, you know, nobody locked up more black people as president than Bill Clinton, right? You know, the first quote unquote black president that still makes me want to. Whatever. This is a family show. <laughs> it's fine. Um, it's a yeah, day. so this is a PG show. So yeah, I'll keep fine. it. I'll keep it PG. You can so, say what you want. Yeah. So I mean, so you know, so it's so you know, so so information. So providing people information isn't that. That's not the. So that's not the answer, it right? Work, so that, that, right? no, it doesn't work. And so let me let me let me tell you what that are what that title is from, and then that'll help answer this question as well, right? So that's a line from um, the North Carolina Civil Rights Commission in 1960, talking about the rate of desegregation, of school desegregation in North Carolina, right? In 1960, there are 232,000 black students in public schools. In 1960, the total number of black students who are going to school with white kids is 77 Wow! out of 232,000, right? And so, um, and so the Civil Rights Commission was like, at this rate of desegregation, um, North Carolina public schools will be fully desegregated in just under 12,000 years, yes. right? But now North Carolina in 1960 is seen as a model of integration, Right. Because they're not Mississippi, because they're not Alabama, because they're not Florida. Right. Who have fewer have have, have even fewer people, yeah. black people going to going to white schools. Right. So um, so North Carolina is a model. Right. So North Carolina is running around doing victory laps in 1960 because they have, quote unquote, integrated their schools, which is to say the governor calls up for the four largest cities and say, hey, look, y'all need to sprinkle some Negro kids into some white schools. So the feds will get up, off, get up off of our, off of our backs. Right. So, you know, so he calls for the mayors of the four largest cities. They integrate the, and they, you know, they sprinkle some Negroes in some schools. The feds come in and I'm like, wow, man, you guys are really integrated. This is a great job. Right. Victory laps. Every, woohoo. Yay. We're integrated. That's progress. In, in a context of, you know, of of explicit and virulent white resistance and intransigence and violence. Right. That constitutes progress. So what do you so what do you do to break that up? Well, you go to the you're in the streets. Right. You're in the you're, you're, you're sitting in. Right. You're engaged in social protest. That's what breaks that up. Right. So the answer to the question about what breaks this stuff up in 2018 is probably going to have to be the same answer. Right. Is we're going to have to have a whole bunch. Of, we're going to have to start shutting stuff down. We're going to have to be out in the streets. We're going to have to make it painful and uncomfortable for people to engage in the same patterns and practices that they've engaged in because they know these things are deleterious. They know these things are corrosive. They know these things are eating away Right. The status quo eats away individuals. It eats up families. It destroys communities. And we know this. And apparently there's a whole bunch of us who really don't care. Right. Right. So that's one of the things that's going to need to change is we're going to have to we're just going to get more people in the street.
1: And I think that uh, that description of, you know, shoving a wrench into the gears uh, exists from the street all the way to, you know, the C-suite at City Hall. Uh, right and and everything in between, the systems that I worked in for years in the public defender 's office, um, you know we have a, a, you know, this is a moment of personal privilege, I guess, but uh, you know there 's a cadre of young lawyers in that office right now that are doing just this in a very you know sort of undercover, not glamorous way, but they 're going in with with motions you know, with pieces of paper that say things very differently from anything a piece of paper has ever said in shelby county, and they 're challenging this stuff, and that 's what we have to i think. Um, continue to, to cultivate and, and encourage is is that it 's not just shutting down a bridge on, on a, on a June, June afternoon it is throwing things into this system that it 's never seen before to break it up and, yep. and, and that 's exactly right and I think it, but economics is the biggest one, and that is not being done and, and maybe that 's you know part of our answer too um, uh, I want to talk about one more thing before before we let you go. Uh, and that is a book that you're, you're working on about a man named George Washington Lee. This is a fascinating story. Uh, I, I love these little nuggets of history that that kind of sneak up on us. Tell us who he was and, and why he's important to you Sure, and what you want to tell um, us about him.
0: But Before we do that, I want to talk about my new book, um, co-edited with Aram Gudsouzian, sure. about, um, about Memphis. Right, he, He's it's a called, professor at the University of yeah, Memphis. He's a professor at the University yeah. of Memphis, um, my friend and colleague. And that book that we both co-edited is called An Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, University Press of Kentucky. It's available now. Um, everybody um, listening to this podcast should buy at least seven copies um, because <laughs> my kids, my <laughs> kids' feet grow really quickly, <laughs> and, and they, they need, they eat they need a lot, shoes. We learned, and they eat a lot. And yes. also,
1: uh, while we're plugging things, Wendy Thomas has already been on the permanent record, and that's episode five. So while we're plugging books and podcasts, go, back, go, go. back and listen to Wendy Thomas that's after right. you
0: buy seven copies of An Unseen Light. That's from right, University of Kentucky Press. Yes, yes. So, um, so this George Washington <laughs> Lee piece. Um, I'll be, um, um, this is a work in progress now. So Lee is a, is a lifelong African-American Republican, a member of the Lincoln League. He is um, um, a co-worker and, and um, close uh, personal friend of Robert Church, Jr., um, who helps to create the Lincoln League in the early part of the 20th century. Um, Lee goes on to some prominence across the state and nation as an African-American Republican. And so when the question of civil rights starts to percolate in the, in the society – Lee's position is like, look, we're the party of civil rights. We got this question right a century before the Democrats did. So African Americans should stay in this party. They should fight for. Um, they should fight for their space within the party. Um, so he's a staunch civil rights um, advocate. Um, he's also a fiscal conservative. So in many ways, he is a, a classical conservative. But he's you know, but but his politics you know he he, he queers his politics right because. Because, well, he thinks that black people should be treated like citizens, right? So that makes him an odd man out in both parties, quite frankly, right? They're like, <laughs> yeah. we don't quite know what to do with this whole black people is human, is human thing, right? So, so he is um, a, a central player in Republican Party politics in the city of Memphis um, in the 1940s and 1950s until he is purged by the local party. I was about um, to ask his relationship with Boss Crump. So his relationship with boss Crump is largely conciliatory, right? Um, They've got a, they've got a balance, right? They strike a balance uh, in terms of, look, you know, we'll support your, you know, we'll support your candidates uh, locally uh, as long as you can give us, you know, as long as you can give us some patronage, right? Um, That starts to shift dramatically when FDR is president, Franklin Roosevelt, and you've got a Democrat in the, in the white house. um, And then the patronage jobs are going to go to Democrats. So he doesn't need Republicans, right? So, um, and that and that relationship grows more contentious as we move closer to the you know, as we move into the 19 late 1940s, early 1950s, we start to see more black activism. So ultimately, um, that contentious relationship that George Washington Lee has with the Republican Party um, comes to a head in the early 1960s when white conservatives take over the party. And ultimately, uh, George Lee and his faction of the party are purged from the party in um, um, in 1964. But
1: a fascinating story up, up until then, and, and the party politics uh, that you describe are uh, never more relevant than they are
0: today. I mean, you know, he says uh, very prophetically, he was like, look, if all of the black folk are in one party, then neither party will respect us, right? You know, if one party, if, they, if we all become Democrats, at some point in time, the Democrats aren't going to respect us. And then the Republicans are going to completely ignore us, right? Yeah. Um, boy, that sounds familiar, right? <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to... Um, Looking forward to, uh, you know, doing a little work on uh, George Washington Lee.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I, w- I wish you much luck on the rest of that research and writing. I know it's a lot of work. History professors are maybe my favorite guests on on the permanent record. You guys, I could talk oh, to you. Oh, i quit it. <laughs> oh, <on>. go on. <laughs> I could talk to you forever, uh, but we, we probably should cut it off. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Professor McKinney for spending some time with us during this important time of remembrance. We appreciate him sharing his insights with us. He has a new book with Professor Aram Gudsouzian of the University of Memphis. It's called An Unseen Light, Black Struggles for Freedom in Memphis, Tennessee. If you live in Memphis, grab a copy from Burke's Books in Cooper Young. It gets rave reviews from people who would know. For a related interview, dive into the Permanent Record archives and listen to Episode 5, our interview with Wendy Thomas, founder of the MLK50 Justice Through Journalism Project. Hopefully you've been keeping up with her. She's had a busy spring in Memphis, too. Thanks, as always, to Gil and Carla Wirth at the OAM Network for their support of The Permanent Record and the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for The Permanent Record. He's still working on that new album. We'll let you know when it comes out. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to the Permanent Record somewhere. Give us a rating wherever you do. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.